We're in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them that Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God and that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the, laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have ne- neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are, you are in all in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said to me may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer for a moment? Father, I uh, particularly feel the weight of your word upon my own heart and conviction this morning. That God, you would increase and I would decrease. God, there is this tendency in my own life to want what only belongs to you. And that's glory, Lord. I could seek it, I could live for it, but God, God, help me live for your glory. Help me preach today for your glory. Help the words of my mouth exalt King Jesus. And Father God, even as I wrestle with this, because God, my own heart is being examined before you, God, thank you for Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross that brings about the forgiveness and the approval that I need and I I always have in you, Christ. And see in your name, church says together, amen. All right. How many of you have seen the movie The Greatest Showman? Anybody? Yes, that was a movie that we have loved. My family loves it. In fact, we watched it last night. It gave me inspiration for the sermon. I kind of see Simon as a guy like... 
P.T. Barnum. He was a magician of sorts. He had a show. People paid attention to him. They liked what he produced. And Samaritans were particularly enraptured with this man, Simon. And there's this imagery that I want us to have in our mind with the greatest showman with P.T. Barnum. And it's towards the kind of the back half of the movie. P.T. Barnum has already achieved so much. I mean, he went from being the tailor's boy whose father died, who was yearning for approval as a young man. He married a rich man's daughter and he couldn't get the approval of his father-in-law's blessing. And so he chased for the approval of others. And he, wherever he chased for the approval of others, he got it. And it became like this insatiable appetite that could never fill him. And then there's this part of the movie where he and his wife Charity are arguing. And she says to him, she says, when will it ever be enough for you? When will it ever be enough for you? When will you finally be happy with the approval you have? When will it ever be enough for you? And she says, you don't need everyone to love you. Just a few good people. Now I resonate with that because I often feel like my life is a chase for people's approval. I find that I'm an approval, approval addict, if I'm honest with yourself. That it's like a drug. If I just get enough, then it's going to make me happy. But I find that the more I go after it and the more I receive it, the more I feel empty inside. And we live in a place where we get instant gratification with approval. You have your phone in your pockets and there's these notifications and the notifications tell you if somebody likes the picture that you posted or the comment that you said or the piffy quote that you said. It's called fake book, by the way. It's fake news for everybody. We are our own PR representatives putting the best foot forward all the time. Where we don't get approval in one place, we'll seek it somewhere else. And that's why social media is so powerful, because things could be absolutely falling apart on the inside, but we could put a facade on the outside and make everybody think it's all okay, everything's good. And so this facade is something that P.T. Barnum was continuing to chase. And as he chased it in the movie, you see that he left his wife and family after that moment. And he went on another show. And this show had another woman who was a singer who was an excellent performer. And she also got him the approval of an audience that he hadn't had before. They were the wealthy. They were the rich. They were the people that he finally entered in to the limelight. He finally had the spotlight. And she bought him that ticket. And he realized, was it worth it? Was it worth it? And as you watch the movie, you begin to see... That this emotional tryst with this woman caused his family to fall apart. There was a loss of livelihood. There was a loss of his family. And he began to second guess himself. He began to almost go through a repentance of sorts. And you hear in the song, From Now On. From now on. I, I practiced that last night for your approval. How is it? For your approval. Thank you. Thank you. We'll just, we'll just wrap up the sermon right here. We could just close with that. All right. Altar call. Let's bring it forward. No, but he says, he, he says in this, these are the lyrics of the song. For years and years I've chased their cheers. The crazy speed of always needing more. Isn't that 
kind of this heart's cry that we have. We'll just keep on chasing what we want until we get more and more and more. And then we realize that there's a vanity. There's a vanity in the applause of people. There's a vanity in chasing people's applause. And he says, from now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. Simon's eyes were blinded by the lights. Simon's eyes were blinded by the approval of others. And he was willing to to follow after God in order to get more and more of it. And so we're going to follow the story of Simon. We're going to follow this passage. I want to look at this passage in three sections. Number one, there's an encouragement in verses 4 through 13. There's an encouragement that you're going to read and we're going to see together in verses 4 through 13. I pray it becomes an encouragement for our church today. Number two, there's a warning. And the warning in particular is a warning against idolatry. We're going to go there here in a moment. And then finally, there's a call. And that call is a call to repentance, and that's in verses 21 through 25. Uh, We're going to start with the encouragement. The backdrop here is that Stephen, who is the first first martyr, has been killed. He was stoned. He He was stoned to death preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to the religious elite calling them to repentance. And if you follow the story, you know that Jesus' cry was a very Christ-like cry at the end where he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so even his love for a lost and broken world was made evident in his death. And as Stephen was being murdered, there was a man that was there in the backdrop and his name was Saul. He was known as the accomplice to the murder, because he gave approval to those who were stoning Stephen. He was holding the coats, the cloaks of those who had killed him. I mean, stoning, we read the quote last week from, um, I, forget, I forget the man's name, but he said, he said stoning is a, is a dirty business. I mean, you're, you're going to get sweaty. You're going to be out of breath. It's a workout. And so you take off your cloak and you take off your garments and you strip down basically into your undergarments and you give those clothings to someone else so they could watch them while you do the dirty business of stoning someone to death. I mean, it was a brutal and horrific scene of which Paul gave approval to Stephen, the first martyr being killed and so this picture that we see is that the, there's some devout men, followers of Christ in Jerusalem, are burying Stephen, mourning Stephen. It was open defiance to the religious elite of their time because they were saying they disapproved of what happened. Because a person who was stoned as a heretic didn't deserve to be buried. They did so in defiance. And then there was also Saul who was going house to house to the Christians that were in the city of Jerusalem, imprisoning the men and the women who were proclaiming Christ. That's the backdrop that we see here. And then we see in verse 4, now those who were scattered about preaching the word. They went about preaching the word. So there was a, this is the encouragement is that the normal everyday people of God, the normal everyday Christians that God had brought from death to life were scattered about. And what were they doing? They were preaching the word. 
is the unstoppable work that had taken place. The gospel kept going. The gospel kept moving forward. Why? Because the Holy Spirit in his people continued to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. And so the encouragement here is where there was difficulty, where there was oppression, where there was persecution, the church was scattered and like a wildfire, it took the sparks and it caused flames to spread other places and the gospel advanced and the ministry of Jesus Christ was proclaimed. There's a man named Tertullian. He said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. That there's a work of the devil that continually seeks to stop the advancement of the gospel. And the way he seeks to stop the advancement of the gospel is to threaten you and make you afraid and make you keep that message inside. But here's the reality that the Holy Spirit is alive and well in the church and the message of Jesus cannot cannot be contained. And the Holy Spirit is spreading the message through the people of God. And Stephen's death was a death that released a wind a wind that blew the message of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's Jesus' words, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That there's this, this work of the gospel from the inside out that continues. And, and let me tell you, friends, lest we forget that God really is at work. We are here today and we are the ends of the earth. No one had in their mind us in that moment. But God's message was unstoppable. And from generation to generation to generation, for the last 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit has been spreading the message and exaltation of Jesus Christ to where we hear it and it started there and somehow it got to us today because people were willing to die for it and we have received that salvation and we have received that hope and we have received that eternal life because somebody believed in the message of salvation so surely so honestly that they proclaimed it with their very lives and now it's our turn it's our turn we're not just reading a history book We're reading the living and active God-breathed words of the Bible so that we would be those who carry the mantle of Christ's proclamation today. And even in the midst of our city, in the midst in the difficulties of the, the oppression we may feel, even though we may not be persecuted like it was then, I don't think the question for us is, how do we die for Jesus? I think the question is, how do we die to ourselves so that we could live for Jesus? I think that's the question we have to ask in our comfortable American Christianity because we have to die to some of the idols of our hearts so that the name of Jesus Christ is glorified and magnified above all else. And so Philip, if you read Acts chapter 6, you see his name among the seven. They were the seven who were appointed and anointed for the ministry to the widows. 
And Philip is a part of the group that begins to scatter. It's called the diaspora. He starts scattering. Him and others scatter. It's believed that they're predominantly the Hellenist Christians, the Hellenist Jewish Christians. They have a Greek background. And so it was the Jews that targeted them first because of their Hellenist Greek background. They made them an easy target. And so they ended up scattering. And Philip, who was one of the seven, started doing this kind of Jesus stuff there. I mean, there was wonders and there was works. There were people who were uh, under the possession or oppression of demons and he cast them out. That was Philip. He was casting out demons. He was allowing those who were lame. He was praying over them and they were healed. There were those who were sick that were healed. And it was God giving evidence of the reality of the healing work of Jesus Christ through Philip's ministry and where Philip's ministry brought healing, brought cleansing, brought renewal. It was validated with the gospel. Do you see that it wasn't just a healing ministry that happened for the sake of bringing healing? It was a healing that pointed to the greater healing and the greater healing was the gospel of Jesus Christ renewing and bringing about a restoration from the inside out. That we need not just the healing of our physical bodies. We need the healing of our hearts. And that was the message that, that Philip proclaimed. That was the message that Philip preached. And it says, so that there was much joy in that city. Man, I read that, I read that verse. So that there is much joy in that city. And I think, oh, I long for a joy like that to be in our city. I long for that. You know, there, there, is, there is two things that make Orlando happy today. And I don't think it's happy in the sense of a genuine happiness. But the two things that I think are the cultural idols of our city that bring us a false joy is that of entertainment. Because we live in the family entertainment capital of the world. Millions of people are flying in here. 20 million people in 2017 flew into Orlando to go to Disney World. And they realize, man, it's just really expensive and really hot out there. <laughs> <laughs> the mouse mugged them. And then the second thing I believe is an idol of our city is the idol of self-expression and our own individuality. The reason why the pride ban- banner fl- reigns high in our city is because we value self-expression and that nothing should get in the way of that. And so one of the most One of the most well-known icons in Orlando is the rainbow flag. And that flag is something that gives us pride. That flag is something that we as a city have fully embraced and embodied and said that if you want to express yourself freely without fear, come here and you can have that place. But here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that that Pride supersedes the heart of God. And so the joy is a joy that's found outside of Christ instead of inside Christ. And I long for the day where we do celebrate the covenant that God gave to Noah. That covenant. But we do so through the work of God's redeeming power that he will never leave us and he will never let us go. And in spite of the best or the worst of ourselves, it's Jesus who defines us and not our own. That he determines 
that definition. And that, that's where the joy started to come in in Samaria. And, and, and here's the thing about Samaria. They were, the, they, they were the, the enemies of the Jews. They were the people that lived about 30 miles. It was the modern day Palestine. And the Jews were against the Samaritans because Samaritans were kind of like the half-breeds. They were those who left the Jewish faith and started breeding with the pagans or started marrying the pagans. And so they created their own form of Jewish religion that the Jews resented. And so there was no way that a Jew could associate with a Samaritan. You read it in Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. A Jew doesn't talk to a Samaritan. I mean, that was probably the best definition of the relationship there. They weren't talking. They weren't on friendly terms. But Jesus crossed the line and started talking to them. This is why in our world where we feel kind of the weight of wickedness around us and, 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 that, and that there is this opposition towards God, we need to go into those spaces and we need to listen to people's stories and we need to allow listening to their stories the message of hope that's found in Jesus Christ. You, you see, we're not here to preach and proclaim facts to them. We're here to listen to the narrative of their lives and we're here to seek to see that their story is connected to a better story, the story of the gospel in Jesus' name. And that's what we're called to do as a people. That's what we're called to do as a church. And that's what Philip was doing in Samaria. And that's why many people, it captured their attention. It captured their hearts. And so we see now that there's this man, Simon, the magician that comes in to play. Simon's the kind of guy who started a Facebook fan page for himself, right? He, he, he started his Instagram accounts. He kind of started to define who he was. I'm a great man. And he said it loud enough and long enough until some people paid attention. And then as the people paid attention, he had a little trickery that made others think that he was who he said he was, a man who was great. And there was also a divinity that was wrapped up in that. If you read here, it says that Simon said of himself he was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, verse 10, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They thought literally he was the divine power of God. That's Simon. They were all paying attention to him. And he had a great show. He had some wonderful trickery. He had an entertainment that kept the Samaritans just filled with rapt attention given to him. And then this man Philip comes and he's doing these miracles and these healings are happening and he's preaching and proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. And so Simon's stadium isn't as full as it used to be and the people are going over to Philip and watching what Philip's doing and they're paying attention to him. And so Simon says, well, rather than trying to beat him, I'm just going to join him. So Simon goes over to the Philip side and joins Philip. And Simon gives attention to the word that's being proclaimed and the miracles that are happening. And it says that Simon believed and was baptized along with other Samaritans in that time, in that day. And so belief took place. I mean, that's an encouraging word, isn't it? There was this belief that happened in the Samaritans where previously unreached people are now reached by 
the gospel. Jesus gives us the parable of the seed that's being spread and it's going on the different soils. The point of the parable isn't to ask what type of soil am I. The point of the parable is you keep sowing seed because you don't know what seed you're throwing it on. Because some is good and some is bad, but God ultimately plants the seed and grows the seeds and sees that the seed is kept secure in himself. This is why we preach the gospel and proclaim it. And in the Samaritans, which was seen as previously rocky soil, God softened it and the seed was planted and some was sprouting up amongst them and it was growing. There was revival happening in the Samaritan church in that time in the Samaritan people. And so Simon believed and was baptized. And, you know, this brings the question is, you, you've all seen and know people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, who have professed belief in Jesus Christ, but their lives don't really match that profession. Are they a Christian? Are they a Christian? And I, and I asked the same question myself, is Simon a Christian? Well, I'll give you my theological perspective here. It didn't, doesn't really matter whether Simon's a Christian or not. There's the same approach that we take to someone who is living in a way that contrary to God is we minister to them the hope of the gospel. Whether they're a believer or they're not, it's the same message that needs to hit their heart. And that's true of Simon here as well. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This is where it gets a little complex. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I think it's worth mentioning that there has been a lot of theological argument around this point in the Bible because this is a unique spot where we see that people believed in Jesus Christ and were baptized but had not yet received the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The Catholic Church has taken this to mean that there is a need for confirmation. Someone is... is uh, showing the fruit of a life with Christ, and the Catholic priest goes and confirms, yes, they are a Christian, and then prays that they would receive the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that, because one, I'm a pastor, and I don't have that type of power, right? I can't do that. I can't just lay my hands on somebody and say, receive the Holy Spirit. I don't have that power. And then the second part is this, is that some believe that there is a Uh, There is a supernatural gifting that takes place that shows evidence of God's uh, of God's work in someone's life when they receive that supernatural gifting. In particular, this happens in the Pentecostal church where signs and gifts are, are, are according to tongues or prophecy or some of the more supernatural gifts. And if you don't have those gifts, then you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you this. Not every Pentecostal church believes that. And I do believe in the active gifts of the Spirit, even tongues and prophecy and the like. I believe that there's a biblical expression that we should pursue after them. Paul says pursue after all the gifts. But the point of this here, I think, was unique in that Jerusalem had seen an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 that was genuine, that was real, that was tangible, that was evident. 
in the church in Jerusalem. It birthed the church. The apostles were aware. They were there. They saw it happen. Philip then goes to Samaria. The gospel is proclaimed. And the word gets back to the apostles. And the apostles hear that something that happened like Jerusalem has happened in Samaria. Why don't you guys go check it out and see that it is true. And if it's true, then you lay hands on those there and give the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that work is validated in Samaria like it was in Jerusalem. So that there's not a separate Samaritan church and a separate Jerusalem church. But we realize we're all one church and we're all led by the same Holy Spirit. And so there was a unique work because in this place and time it was necessary. Because there has never been a time like it and there never ever will be again. So that was necessary for the apostles to be there. That's my that's my take on it, and uh, I believe that, um, that with that, there's much that we can learn of our need of God's Spirit in our lives, and that there's nothing that we can do that's good apart from God, and that's why it was so important that Samaritans be filled with the Spirit. Okay, back to Simon. If you read at verse 16, or verse 17, Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hand, he offered them some money. He saw this thing and he said to Peter and John and some of the apostles, he's like, can I, can I take you guys to lunch? Can, can I take you guys to lunch? You, where, where, do you, where are you going to go? Texas de Brazil? We'll, we'll go to Texas de Brazil. Let me, let me take you to lunch. So Shahaskaria sounds good, right? Jonathan, Jonathan's Brazilian. He read the passage. And so Shahaskaria sounds good. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. But let, let's just keep the picanha going, okay? I'll put the thing on green and, and let's go. And so he begins to talk to them about this. And he says, hey, how, how about this? Man, I've got, I, I, I need a trick like this. I need something like this. And so I'll give you money, a lot of it. If you'll show me how that whole Holy Spirit thing happened, so that way I can do what you just did. How, how's that sound? <laughs> Peter didn't even go to lunch with him. Peter, Peter's like, Peter's like, the hell with you and your money. That's what Peter said to him. That's the most literal translation, by the way. Read it. I'm telling you, I didn't cuss. It's in the Bible. That's what Peter said in that time. Now, the warning is that there's this heart idol in Simon that has to be dealt with. Because here's the danger that you and I all face today in our Christian life, unless we're allowing God to do surgery on our hearts, is that we could use God instead of honestly loving him. You hear that? We could seek the things of God. We could seek the hand of God. We could seek the blessings of God. We could seek the benefits of God, all without seeking God himself. And that's what Simon was doing. He was seeking the things of God, the benefits of God, the blessings of God. And all he wanted to do was pimp God out for him, his own purposes. I know it sounds harsh, but that's, in effect, what Judas Iscariot did. Judas Iscariot realized that this whole falling Jesus thing wasn't going to pay off the way he thought it was. And so he sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. 
He was bargaining with God, saying, God, okay, I'll be on your team if you give me this or that. And we think that we can be on Team Jesus because Team Jesus is going to win. But all the while, our selfish motivations are exposed and that we want to be on Team Jesus so that Team Ryan could advance. And that's what Simon was doing. Simon was saying, okay, I'll be on Team Jesus. Now I'm going to take this to my greatest show. I'm going to give some more trickery to the, the, the next episode of my life. And so he can use and abuse the gospel for his own plans and purposes so that Simon is made great instead of King Jesus. And what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit says, no, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his greatness. John Piper says it this way. He says, it's kind of like you're showing a, a child, a, a little child, that there's a bird. And so you're taking your hand and you're pointing your hand up at the bird and the child just looks at your hand because they don't really understand the whole concept of the bird. And so the child thinks that the hand is what you're talking about, but really you're just pointing at the bird in order to show them something that would fascinate them. But what Simon is saying is, is that I want to be that hand. I want to be that hand that, that, that everybody's looking to. And, and I want to be the one that's in the center. I want to be the one that has everyone's attention. But really, what the Holy Spirit was doing through the apostles was pointing, using them as just pointing forward to Christ, showing it's all about Jesus. And so that's why Peter responds in the way he does, saying that, that Simon is a man who is in the gall of bitterness. Pick up with me uh, right here. It says... Uh, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Do you hear that? For your heart is not right before God. What did Simon do wrong? What sin did he break? I mean, which commandment did you, can you say that this is the commandment that Simon went against? But Peter levels it to him. He says, your heart is not right before God. This is why we have to do the hard work of, of understanding and diagnosing and distinguishing the idols of our hearts is because we make for ourselves idols that we worship. And in Simon's case, he lived for the applause and for the approval of others. And he could not discern that that idol was trying to feed off of the things of God in order to give him more and more and more. This is where we have to be able to diagnose our heart idols. Tim, Tim Keller calls it this way. It's really easy to see someone who worships money because their life just kind of reflects that they, they worship money. There's this pursuit of that. It's, it's really easy to see that someone worships a, a created thing because their life um, reflects that. But one of the things that Tim Keller says is he says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give anything that's so central and essential to you, your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel like it's worth living. What is that thing for you? And when we talk about heart idolatry, it's not the visible things at the surface that oftentimes are the idols. It's those things that we use to give us the, 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 the desires of our heart. 
And I know I have what's called the approval idol. And this internal mechanism, I call myself an approval addict in repentance right now. This internal mechanism that just wants people to like me and be well thought of by others. And so if I have money, I'm going to use money towards that end. If, if I have a, a currency that allows me to buy that approval, I'll use it. For some people, it's power. They want to be in charge of everybody. They want to be running the company because that prestige is something that they long for. It's something that they live for. And so anything that they can use, whether it's their family, whether it's their kids, whether it's money, whatever it is, is a currency that will buy them that idol of power or approval. There's a woman who, who says this um, as she was talking about this and how she uses her, her children for this internal idolatry. Uh, her name is Sarah Hardy. She says, our souls are made for relationship and affection with God, but we try to place that need on our children. We seek affirmation and compliments from others on the behavior and talents of our children. Even when they're only toddlers, she says, we make our children idols. Using your children to get what only you should get from God, which is approval, is laying a heavy burden on your children that your children should never have to feel. It's going to cause them to disdain, disdain people's approval for your benefit. And so there's this warning there. And the call in closing is for us to recognize our idols, repent of them, and worship Jesus Christ. Acts eight twenty one through 23 says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That's the call to Simon. So really, you know, Simon feared the penalty of his sin, but he didn't really understand that he needed pardon for it. And what Peter is preaching to Simon is that you need pardon for your sin. You need to turn to Christ and repent of your idolatry and worship King Jesus. That was the call for Simon. And that's the call for us today. That we would recognize where our hearts are misaligned where we worship the created things over the creator, where we seek the hand of God instead of the face of God, where we seek to have blessings from God without fully loving God. And you can show up in church on Sunday and put on the fake book facade that you're actually doing all the right things, but inside, internally, you're wasting away. You're in the gall of bitterness like Simon. And what we have to do is diagnose at the heart level God Renew, redeem, and restore where my hearts are given in worship to other things because it only belongs to you. And here's what I'm reminding of myself today. I don't need your approval. I don't need it. Because I have the approval of King Jesus. Because I know that Jesus was fully approved before God. And it's so, you know, the, the thought is unsettling of going before God and, and, and this conviction of sin, knowing that you've sinned against God and that you're deserving death and judgment. I mean, that thought is consuming. But here's the thing that Jesus shows me. In Christ, I am fully approved because Jesus is fully accepted by God and he's given me 
God's approval through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He died so that I could be accepted by God. And his death was accepted as the perfect sacrifice for sin so that I wouldn't have to pay for my sin. And I'm fully approved and accepted in King Jesus. That is the message of grace that Simon needed. And at the end of that story, the greatest showman, he leaves the glitz and glamour of the arena and he goes to his wife and his kids. And it's interesting because it says, oh, that's a worthy cause. That's a worthy cause for P.T. Barnum. Leave the glitz and the glamour and go to your wife and kids. and, And if that's going to satisfy him. But here's the reality. Here's the reality. The reality is we could try to find approval in those things and still never find them. Some of us have tried. Some of us are doing it right now. And we will still escape the fact that the approval that we most need was found in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago as he hung on that old rugged cross and died for our sins. And that's going to make you the better father. That's going to make you the better friend. That's going to make you the better coworker. That's going to make you love more than you ever thought imaginable because you know that you are loved more than you ever thought imaginable. Your wife will never be able to give you the love that only God can give you. Your spouse will never be able to give you the love that only God can give you. Your friends will never be able to give you that. Christ has, and that's our pursuit. And that's where we recognize, we repent, and we worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your finished work. Lord, we come to you right now realizing that God, we don't have to earn anything here. We don't have to we don't have to create a great show in here to make people applaud us. But Lord, we we realize that it's all about you being glorified. It's all about you being lifted high. God, it's about you being the cry of our hearts. And so, God, we want to we repent of the things that we've turned to, that we've thought is greater than you, that have captured our minds. And, God, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. God, help us right now. Fix our eyes on Jesus. God, show us where we have sinned against you. Show us where we've looked to other things and help us fix our eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the sin and the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. God, help us fix our eyes on you. And we thank you, God, that you died for us, that you gave your life for us so that we might live for you. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us live for you. Help us proclaim this message of salvation, of utmost importance. And God, help us seek you above all else. And as we sing this song, God, bring repentance to our lives. God, show us the things that we have to turn from so that we could turn to you and worship you with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our mind, and with all our strength. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen. Would you stand? I want to caution you today. The communion table is an open table. It's an open table for those who profess and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. But lest we be like Simon, 
going to that table for our own purposes and realizing that we're in the gall of bitterness, I, I think it's important that we check our hearts and we realize that there's a work that God seeks to do inside of us that we cannot assume. But we say, God, have your way in me. And that God would bring awareness to those things. And even as you go to the table, maybe he brings awareness to those things and you say that thing in your heart. God, I've sought people's approval. Would you forgive me? God, I've sought power in places that that God has only led me to, to brokenness. Would you forgive me? Would you say that thing in your heart and would you take the Lord's Supper and realize that everything that you have is accomplished in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite our servers to come and serve us communion together. And I encourage you before you go up to the table, ask God to do a work in your heart that only he can do.